Hi, and welcome to a special edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, the Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me, as always, and for this very special edition, is Professor Arthur Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian and Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly summary covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And I say special both because of the circumstances of what we're discussing, uh, some news out of the United States Supreme Court, which I'm sure you have all heard, and the fact that normally, uh, you know, since we only do one summer issue, uh, as opposed to a, a July and August issue of Law Notes, we, we don't usually convene um, for a separate special podcast to talk about such things. It's only for the most urgent, urgent news <laughs> can't wait. Well, they can't wait. And what also can't wait before we get started is if you're listening to this podcast uh, it, through iTunes, if you could take a moment to give us some stars and say nice things about us, it will help more people hear the wisdom of Art Leonard uh, and his reflections on some of these cases affecting... And, and the wisdom of Brad Snyder. You know, I, I threw that out there, and subconsciously I, I was hoping you might lean forward and, and say such a nice... Such well, a nice comment. Your thought-provoking questions and comments are an integral part. <laughs> All right. Of this whole All right. We, I should have left it with uh, with what you said the first time. All right. So let's uh, jump right in. We're going to probably talk in two segments. First, we're going to talk about the ruling with respect to Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, and that we'll refer to as the Windsor case, obviously. Uh, And then uh, the second half, we'll talk about the developments with respect to Prop 8, which is the Perry case out of California. So with respect to the Windsor case, uh, what most of our listeners already know is that by a 5-4 to decision uh, in an opinion authored by Justice Kennedy, the court has ruled that Section 3 of DOMA is unconstitutional, and it it did that with with a strong look towards the effect on, on real couples and real wedding, uh, real wedded couples uh, in states in which marriage is legal. And I'll, I'm going to throw this to you from the start. Uh, Kennedy's decision, not unlike Kennedy decisions, though, leaves a little bit of question as to what the bases were for the decision. Uh, on one hand, some, think you, some say it's, it's, it's purely because of the, the finding that DOMA is premised on animus, basically, motivated by malice towards a, a certain class of married people. Others who might argue, and the Chief Justice certainly wanted to argue in his dissent, that it was motivated by federalism concerns, and that's where, where the ship stops. So can you speak to that at the start? Okay. Well, first of all, as, as you mentioned, Justice Kennedy's decision uh, is not ideally transparent as to what the basis for the holding is. And this is an old complaint about Kennedy's decisions in gay rights cases and in some other cases. Uh, you'll recall in Roma versus Evans in 1996, striking down Colorado Amendment 2, uh, it was unclear whether he was doing heightened scrutiny or rational basis. And in Lawrence versus Texas, in which uh, the Texas sodomy law was struck down, once again, it was not ideally clear because Justice Kennedy has not used the familiar terms of constitutional analysis that are familiar to any law student, any lawyer who's, who's taken a law, uh, a con law course or who's read law review articles about this. Uh, we in the professoriate and, uh, and lower court judges have a tendency to classify, categorize, adopt particular words or phrases, and Kennedy just won't use them. <laughs> For him, I think every case is sort of sui generis. Every case is its own case. And uh, he uh, he used a phrase. He harvested a phrase from his decision in Romer and uh, appropriated it here, careful consideration. So this isn't rational basis. This isn't heightened scrutiny. This isn't strict scrutiny. He said we have to give careful 
consideration. And, and the, the trigger for that was these actions of an unusual character. Right. He said it, it's unusual for Congress to single out a particular group and treat it differently from other groups. And so we have to pay particular attention here. We have to give careful consideration to why they did it and what its effect is. And uh, one thing he did early in his analysis was to devote substantial attention to the history of the allocation of authority between the states and the federal government in the area of domestic relations, and specifically marriage, that unlike some countries where there is a national marriage law and the national government administers the issuance of marriage licenses and the recording of marriages in the United States, this has been allocated to the states. And traditionally, the federal government has accepted as married someone who is lawfully married by the state. And so he goes on about this and says, for the federal government to suddenly adopt its own definition of marriage and apply it across the board to every federal statute and regulation is very unusual, unprecedented, and so that raises concerns for us. Why did they do it? And then he said, of course, the effect of this is to impair the status and dignity and he uses that word dignity. Yeah, I want to I want to pause on Numerous that for a second. Art is I was struck by, and this is not, I guess, in some ways, not surprising given Kennedy's the language he chose both in Romer and in, and particularly in Lawrence, um, in terms of giving real meaning to uh, the, the sort of impact on the individual and the individual self worth. But I I started to count the times he used dignity, indignity, uh, dignify these terms about what's going on here, and then I stopped because it was clear that just the point is is that over and over again he invokes this concept. Right. And I was wondering if you could reflect yeah. on that and, a little and, bit. And where does this come from? It comes from Lawrence versus Texas, mm-hmm. where he talked about how the sodomy law was a violation of the dignity of same-sex couples. And uh, he also, uh, he tends to channel European human rights law pretty strongly, and, and the idea of uh, dignity is also something that you get out of the European Convention on Human Rights. And the, the the regard for uh, private life and individual dignity. And he takes it, I, I thought, one of the more moving aspects of the decision, although it was just a line, uh, he didn't devote a substantial amount of time to it, um, but then he says he talks about the humiliation of the children right. uh, of same-sex couples. By, by the adverse treatment of their parents and their families. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's. I think part of the idea behind that is their families are different from other families, and it's already a challenge to them to feel that they are normal kids when they're living in families that are uh, treated by the federal government as somehow second class, or as Kennedy refers to it, second tier. Right, unlike um, Justice Ginsburg's uh, invocation of the skim milk marriage here, in Kennedy's opinion, it is, it is a second tier marriage. marriage. I was wondering, and, though... And so, and so that relates, the dignity stuff, that relates to liberty. And uh, this is important because this also channels Kennedy's portion of three-judge centrist position on abortion in the Casey case from, uh, oh, about 20 years ago now, on abortion, uh, where he talks about liberty in the, con- in the uh, due process clause as the sort of fountainhead of rights to protect human dignity. So he says that this is, this is uh, saying that your marriages are not as good as other marriages, and that impairs the dignity of the couple. Because the state, by allowing you to get married, by adopting a marriage equality policy, whether through its legislature or through its highest court, is basically adopting a policy of saying these marriages are equal. They're all the same. 
and, but the, now the federal government is degrading them by treating them as unequal. And so there he's invoking the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. Uh, so he's, he's using federalism and this departure from the traditional arrangement between the states and the federal government about authority over marriage uh, as one factor in his analysis. He's using the concept of dignity under the due process clause uh, that, that human dignity and the right to marry, which, of course, has been identified by the Supreme Court in Loving versus Virginia as a fundamental right. And then he says, and of course, the Supreme Court has recognized the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment due process clause. And here, the federal government is treating as unequal the marriages of same-sex partners as compared to how they deal with the marriages of different-sex partners. So this sort of a three-pronged attack Although ultimately, in his decision, when he comes down to the punchline at the end, he says that it violates the Fifth Amendment, uh, both the due process and equal protection components of the Fifth Amendment. And the reason is that he says, you, know, you look at the legislative history of DOMA, and what was the purpose of Congress in adopting it? Well, at the time, no one could get, no same-sex couples could get married anywhere in the U.S. This was a, uh, a reaction to ongoing litigation in Hawaii. And at the time Congress passed DOMA, the trial judge in Hawaii hadn't even rendered a decision yet. Uh, it was on remand from the Hawaii Supreme Court, which said that this was a, a strict scrutiny case because it involved sex discrimination, a theory that nowhere rears its head in Justice Kennedy's opinion that, that this was sex and discrimination. And you, you bring up the, the the legislative history of DOMA, and and this is, you know, what's interesting about this, I mean, we, we've talked about this, and obviously we have our points of view. In some ways, I would count us among the... In, I'll speak for myself in the camp of it's pretty easy to discern what was really going on with DOMA and that certainly whether the le individual legislators held the hatred in their hearts or rather held the sort of strategic wisdom in their own from their own electoral perspective how to appeal to one's others, uh, you know, malice in their hearts, um, that DOMA was really about uh, some level of animus, no matter how you slice it. But this actually seems to be the, one of the central disputes between folks like John Roberts, Justice Roberts, and Justice Scalia is, no, 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 we would, I think it's Roberts who says, we would not so easily tar the political branches with the allegations of bigotry. And, no. and Scalia says oh, something. Scalia's outraged. Right, and we'll get he says, to. He says, you know, you're, you're calling the people who passed DOMA enemies of the human race, you know, and he uses a Latin term. Well, and they say, they even use the phrase, I think, I think Alito also does this, and we'll get to all these, uh, the dissents as well. They keep asking for more evidence. They say, what, you know, in the absence of more evidence, um, and I guess we obviously have one point of view on this, but if not DOMA, if DOMA cannot be a piece of legislation that would be found to be really motivated by animus, what would it take in terms of evidence for a well, John Roberts or a Scalia? Well, for example, one of the cases that Kennedy bases his decision on is the Marino case versus the U.S. Department of Agriculture where the Supreme Court struck down a ban on uh, food stamps for households with unrelated adults. And the legislative history showed that uh, this was, when this was going through Congress, it was at a time when there was a lot of consternation about hippie communes and uh, people commenting that hippie communes were getting food stamps and being <laughs> subsidized by the federal government. And so animus against hippies motivated Congress in putting that ban in the statute. And its main effect was really to harm a lot of poor families who shared living accommodations. Mm -hmm. You know, when there was more than one household sharing an apartment, they were all disqualified from food stamps because there were unrelated adults living there. So the Supreme Court said, well, animus against hippies, that's not a legitimate justification. 
And that case gets cited in the gay rights cases by Kennedy and also by O'Connor in, in her uh, concurring opinion in Lawrence versus Texas. Uh, the, the, the idea that a statute that's animated by disapproval, moral disapproval, dislike of a particular group without more, without having some kind of substantive justification beyond that, uh, will not satisfy the requirements of equal protection and uh, certainly not the requirements of due process. Uh, so, uh, you know, Kennedy isn't really saying that the members of Congress were bigots. And I think looking back, what we would say is they were political opportunists. Mm -hmm. There was a national election going on. Uh, you know, the entire House of Representatives, a third of the Senate and the presidency were at stake at this time in 1996. DOMA was introduced by Senator Dole, who went on to become the Republican nominee for president. The idea was same-sex marriage was going to be a wedge issue that the Republicans were going to use against the Democrats in the election. They assumed that Clinton would veto it and that they would enact it over his veto. So the Republicans would claim credit for defending marriage at a time when public opinion polls showed that uh, public support for same-sex marriage was about 20 to 30 percent. Now, so the public was overwhelmingly not there yet. Uh, and so they thought they'd use it as a wedge issue. Clinton surprised them by signing it and by trumpeting it, and, although he signed it in the dead of night, not in a big public ceremony. But then uh, there was actually, uh, and, and this caused a lot of consternation by the Democrats at that time, there was uh, radio ads in some states trumpeting Clinton's signing of the Defense of Marriage Act. But at any rate, he neutralized the issue. It couldn't be a wedge issue if the Democrats and most Democratic senators voted for it. No, the, 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 the you know, vote was, majorities were overwhelming right, on it both was, sides. It was sort of a moral panic thing, and, uh, and it was political opportunism. Uh, obviously, many of these uh, members of Congress probably genuinely felt that same-sex couples shouldn't marry and that the federal government shouldn't subsidize their marriages with any benefits whatsoever. Uh, but various rationalizations were made up after the fact for the purpose of litigation. When, when Doma was first challenged in the federal court in Massachusetts and uh, the administration was defending it, their position was, in the First Circuit, it's rational basis. There were already cases holding that sexual orientation discrimination would be a rational basis case. So they said, under a rational basis case, any justification we can think of will do, even if it wasn't specifically a justification at the time the statute was passed. And so they came up with this uniformity theory that Congress could legitimately want the uh, qualifications for spousal benefits under federal law to be uniform throughout the country. Well, and that's a justification that still holds appeal to. I mean, this right. is what ultimately Scalia, 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 Scalia articulates. articulates. Uh, so, uh, you know, you could say they weren't necessarily bigots, but they were people who had a political rather than a, a sort of non-discriminatory policy reason for doing what they were doing. After the fact, they came up with some policy reasons the court, the First Circuit didn't find them convincing. The Second Circuit certainly didn't find them convincing. The odd thing about Kennedy's decision is he doesn't even go into them in any detail. He doesn't really discuss the various grounds that the bipartisan legal advisory group, Blag, was articulating in their briefing and oral arguments and in the, the raft of amicus briefs that were filed on the side of Blag. He doesn't go into that at all, and Scalia certainly criticizes him for it. But for Kennedy... I think what he really sees here is an analogy to Romer. 
at a very deep level, and he cites his opinion in Romer several times. And, and it's worth just, uh, um, most people listening are probably familiar with it, but I think it's worth mentioning again that in 96, in a decision authored by Justice Kennedy, basically said, no Colorado voters, despite the fact that you've passed this amendment to your constitution that purports to basically make LGBT folks sort of a special exception to the possibility of being covered by anti-discrimination laws, uh, uh, despite the fact that you've over that you've passed it, I don't remember by what margin. We're going to find substantial. pretty substantial margin that we're going to find that that's actually unconstitutional. And then that brings me to a question. Um, but, but let me finish. Yeah, the sure, go for it. Uh, in Romer, he said making people unequal for no purpose other than because you don't think there is good. That isn't a legitimate justification under the U.S. Constitution. And he comes back and he says the same thing here. It's basically making same-sex couples unequal for the purpose of making them unequal and without having any other really significant purpose. He says it wasn't done for purposes of efficiency or economy or uh, because in any particular policy that was affected, there was a judgment that for purposes of that policy, same-sex couples shouldn't qualify. This was an across-the-board thing. And that's what he had found so offensive in Romer, that Colorado had this across-the-board thing. Gays can never be protected from discrimination in any context. And here, the uh, Congress was saying same-sex couples can't be considered married for any purpose, for any context, without having carefully looked at all the different contexts in which it could arise under federal law and making a finding as to each of them that it was appropriate for the following non-discriminatory reasons to exclude same-sex couples. That was absent, and that offended Kennedy. And, of course, it was easy to enlist the four uh, Democratic appointees to the court who uh, were ready, I think, probably on a much more straightforward equal protection analysis, similar to the Second Circuit in this case, they probably would have if they were writing the opinion. But Kennedy gets to write the opinion because he's the senior judge in the majority and he signs it to himself. And, and does Kennedy, the, the, the exposition about federalism that, that Scalia then in his dissent takes him to task for because he says basically, you know, you devote seven pages to this, and then what for if you're only just going to then conclude that the reason why it fails is because of this animus argument? But is that just to sort of butcher? I think you've made the point, actually. It wasn't clear to me until you articulated that he's buttressing the idea that this is so... You can sort of get a sense that this is an unusual act by looking at how much of a departure to begin with it is for well, the federal and, government to be and his approach taking is, this approach. His approach is actually more similar to the First Circuit's approach. Uh, in which it struck down Section 3, uh, it rejected the Commonwealth of Massachusetts argument in one of the two consolidated cases that it had, that this is a Tenth Amendment case, and it's all about federalism. Uh, but the, uh, the, second, the First Circuit said, but the federalism issues that adhere in this case help to persuade us to not, not necessarily go to heightened scrutiny, but to go to rational basis that's more searching uh, and uh, the Second Circuit uh, also mentioned that, but the First Circuit really seemed to hang its hat on the way that federalism issues are entwined with the due process and equal protection issues in the case. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, one could spend lots of time speculating about the politics of this opinion. Why was it Kennedy writing it? Well, because he's the senior judge in the majority, and he wanted to write about federalism, but if he, if he tried to hang the whole opinion on federalism, then he might have ended up with a plurality opinion by the four Democratic appointees with a more straightforward equal protection well, analysis. So, you know, it's possible that he wrote the federalism part of this opinion with the idea that that would be the main thing, and then his 
draft is circulated and the other justices respond and they say, no, we think this is more of an equal protection case. And he ends up having to compromise his opinion to keep his five members. Well, Otherwise, he would just be writing a concurring opinion to someone else's uh, plurality. And that's that's actually fascinating. And, and I, I guess one thing, though, Justice Roberts, in his dissent, wants to make it. Whether it is he or it is not, he wants to make it a federalism. And he does something, I think, I mean, I guess he is very smart and very clever, obviously. I mean, he says... He plants seeds. Yeah, the as the Linda Greenhouse just wrote in the yeah. New York Times this past weekend about what is the sort of approach of John Roberts and this sort of, you know, even in losing a battle, sort of losing, you know, planting seeds for future wins by either whether he's in the majority or the dissent, uh, sort of setting up things. And here, through that lens, he sort of says... It is a federalism decision, and the the flip side of the same coin on that is then we might be back here, you know, with the federalism argument turned against the supporters of marriage equality in the sense that there are states, obviously, where the traditional deciders of what marriage is have decided that it's limited to right. one man and one woman. Well, well this, is, this is where the dynamics of the three dissenting opinions are very, very interesting, because I would say, you know, to try to characterize one as the main dissent, uh, it would probably be Scalia for the simple reason that Roberts joins in part of Scalia's dissent, Thomas joins in all of Scalia's dissent. So Scalia's dissent, to some extent, represents the views of three. Uh, Alito writes a separate dissent in which Thomas concurs in part. Uh, so he only gets two, and on different points. So the dissenters go off in two different directions. One is the idea that this case shouldn't have been before the court, because there were really only two parties to this case. There was Edie Windsor, who was suing for her tax refund, on the estate tax she paid when her uh, spouse died, and the IRS wouldn't recognize her spouse because of Section 3 of DOMA. Uh, so there are only two parties, really. There's the United States as defendant, and there's Edie Windsor as plaintiff. And Blag was allowed to intervene because the United States wasn't going to present a merits defense to Section 3 of DOMA, but Blag isn't really a party. And so Scalia says, as between the two parties in this case, there is no dispute. They both agree that the Second Circuit got it right. So what are we doing here, he says. Literally, he says, what are we doing here? <laughs> uh, because it's, it's really quite unusual to have a case where the petitioner is asking the Supreme Court to affirm the decision below. And he said, you know, this is the strangest motion to dismiss in the history of the United States, he says. When, when the government responded to the complaint with a motion to dismiss, they said... Your Honor, please don't dismiss this case. <laughs> you know, we're filing a motion to dismiss for form's sake because you always file a motion to dismiss. But, you know, don't dismiss this case. And then the Second Circuit, they say to the Second Circuit, they appealed it to the Second Circuit because the district judge found Delmo unconstitutional. And they said to the Second Circuit, Second Circuit, please affirm the district court. <laughs> and now they're going to the Supreme Court and they're saying, please affirm the Second Circuit. And he said, you know, what are we doing here? We're a court. You know, Kennedy goes on about how it is the role of the Supreme Court to declare what the law is, what the Constitution means. Scalia says, no, that is not the job of the Supreme Court. The job of the Supreme Court is to decide cases mm -hmm. between parties that have a real controversy. And incidentally, in the course of deciding cases, as needed to do so, we declare what the law is if that's an issue. But that's not our role. We're a court. We decide cases. Now, Scalia, though, in, in, yeah. in reaching this, in making that argument, has to sort of gloss over one thing. And he, in fact, glosses over it by just calling it a contrivance. And that's, yes. that's the fact that despite the fact that the Obama administration and the Justice Department have been on our side, you know, yeah. you know in these proceedings in Windsor, uh, they haven't paid 
They have never. The they haven't paid the money fact, to Edie Windsor. I so, thought the president lost a good chance to be a little witty when he called up Edie Windsor to congratulate her, and he should have said, "Edie, this is the president. The check is in the bank." <laughs> but he didn't because it isn't. The IRS is going to take their their good time with that. But I, I bring but, that point up because I mean. Scalia labels that the fact that they haven't paid it as a contrivance designed to have right. the court continue to have jurisdiction to hear the dispute. Yeah. But and you know what? They're it's right. Sort of is, but, but 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 the point it's, is they, it's real. It's not fake. And it's not just it's not just Edie. It's the the thousands of right. binational same sex couples who are waiting and waiting and waiting for this decision so they can get a green card. It's you know people who pay to state taxes. People all across the country. Thousands of people who paid extra income taxes because the value of domestic partnership benefits is imputed to them as income, whereas uh, for, a, for a legal spouse it isn't. You know, there are, uh, Kennedy points it out, millions of people affected by this decision. So this isn't a, a case where the court is just being asked to give some advisory opinion. This is a court where a lot rides on it, a lot of real interests of real people for whom Edie Windsor is just a symbol. Uh, so it's a real case. It's not just a contrivance. But that's that's the first part of Scalia's opinion, and that's the part the Chief Justice and Thomas both agree to. The second part of his opinion, he says, well, as long as the court got to the merits, <laughs> I should comment on the merits. Yeah. And boy, did they blow it. You know, he, he, he says this is a political question. This is not uh, – and, and he goes into two of the justifications that had been cited by Black as being legitimate non-discriminatory justifications for DOMA at the time. You know, same-sex marriage loomed as a possibility. Congress had to consider how it would affect the hundreds and hundreds of federal statutes that refer to marital status or spouse, and they decided they wanted a uniform definition. And if you're going to go for a uniform definition, he said, it's not bigoted or mean-spirited to pick the definition that has been the definition for the entire history of our country and just say that will remain the definition while the states are working out whether they want to let people marry. seems actually kind of plausible. Uh, and and so uh, uh, we get uh, some buy-in on that uh, from Roberts, uh, who also in his dissent actually spends most of his time on the federalism point. Uh, and this is where why Roberts doesn't concur in that part of Scalia's opinion. Scalia says this is not a federalism opinion. This is an equal protection and due process opinion. And Roberts says in his dissent, this is a federalism decision. He says the main theme of the majority opinion is federalism. That's interesting, by the way, that you have in real time. I mean, I guess th- I guess maybe this isn't the first time this happened in response yeah. to a Kennedy opinion, but you have dissenters basically dissenting over what is the very right. essence of and, what's been decided. And Scalia says, and of course, you know, the court doesn't use heightened scrutiny or strict scrutiny, uh, so it must be a rational basis case. Well, yeah. on, on that, and we've talked about this before, um, Several times, I guess you have to. Um, so obviously, a static, right? The community, uh, Pride Weekend, timing couldn't have been better for Edie yeah. Windsor. Personally, finally, a day right. of, of justice hopefully coming, uh, at least with respect to uh, the, well, she's the gonna payment. Get, she's going to interest. And she's going to get interest, as Robbie Kaplan pointed out in one of the interviews. It's um, been building up for years. Exactly. Um, so there's that. Um, but we've talked about and others have talked about how – what what we'd real what you'd really want is not only this, but you'd want. I think you'd want. You tell me. 
Kennedy making it very clear that not only does it fail, but it fails on the basis of a heightened scrutiny. Or, or maybe you would argue that that's what well, we got. This careful consideration is a form of heightened scrutiny. Well, it's somewhere between rational basis and heightened scrutiny. And why does it matter? Remind our what, Why it matters is because of all the other cases we have out there in which uh, we are confronted with arguing to lower federal courts what the standard of review is when a state government policy or a federal policy is seen to discriminate based on sexual orientation. Is it a suspect classification? Is heightened or strict scrutiny the correct standard? That switches the burden of proof. It puts the burden of proof on the government to justify, and then the government has to have a really good or even a compelling justification. It really makes it much easier to win the case if we get the Supreme Court saying that sexual orientation claims are evaluated using heightened or strict scrutiny. And we didn't get that in this case. Uh, we didn't get that in Romer. We didn't get that in Lawrence. What we got was Kennedy just saying, well, what's been presented to me is unfair in a way that violates the Constitution. But I'm not going to be too much more specific than that. Uh, I mean, in, in Romer, he was sort of saying that it was a prima facie violation of equal protection, picking up on an amicus brief that had been filed by a bunch of common law professors. In this case, there was an amicus brief uh, filed by con law professors, and there was also an amicus brief filed in the in the Prop 8 case, and in a footnote in his dissent, Alito rips apart the amicus brief filed in the Prop 8 case. And I, I speculate he did that because he was disappointed he didn't get to write in the Prop 8 case, mm-hmm. because he joined the dissent that found that there was no jurisdiction. And when we'll get to That's talking about that. Right, so Alito. Why is there a separate opinion from Alito? Because Alito thinks that black had standing to bring this case to the Supreme Court. So he could not agree with Scalia's dissent on that point. Uh, and also, on the merits, because he went on to comment on the merits too, obviously because he thought there was jurisdiction, so it was appropriate for him. It really wasn't so appropriate. Everything Scalia and the chief said about the merits is technically uh, inappropriate uh, sort of uh, blather, as, as well, it were, because they both... They both said, and Thomas agreed with them. Well, no, Thomas didn't agree with them on that because, uh, no, he did agree with them on that. So we have three dissenters saying there's no jurisdiction. So if there's no jurisdiction, they shouldn't have said anything on the merits. But Alito says Blag had jurisdiction because Congress's authority to legislate was at stake here because one of their statutes was being thrown out. And Scalia makes fun of this in his dissent. He disagrees with this. He says, look, that would mean that Congress always has standing to intervene as a party whenever a federal statute's constitutionality that the, is issued. Yeah, if the injury is just the, the said, statute being questioned. He said that's, that's you know, the, the one case where the court had previously held that was the uh, the case of the uh, single-house veto of the executive and uh, in, in the context of immigration, the Chada case. And he said in that case, Congress was intervening to protect its prerogative under the statute to veto executive actions. He said, so they clearly did have a stake. But in this case, it's just whether a statute is constitutional or not. And Congress has no more stake in that than any other citizen of the United States. But Alito comes up with this theory that Blag had had uh, uh, standing and based on a resolution that was passed in January after the fact, after the petition for cert was granted, uh, in which the House officially for the first time authorized Blag to participate in this case. Prior to that, it had just been a ruling by a committee. Uh, and, and he cites it without comment as, you know, the House has authorized Blag to represent it. Uh, but then he goes to the merits, and on the merits, 
he's channeling Professor George of Princeton, who is a leader of the anti-same-sex marriage contingent. He's on the board of the National Organization for Marriage, one of its co-founders, writes a lot of articles and books. And George has this theory that, and it's not purportedly based on religion, it's based on natural law and philosophy, that, you know, there are two distinct views of marriage. One is that marriage evolved as an institution intended to channel procreation. The traditional or conjugal view. as Traditional or conjugal view of marriage. And then there's the more recent view that has emerged, probably uh, in response to the women's rights movement, uh, among other things, uh, the idea of, of companionate marriage, that marriage is about the relationship between the couple and the children is sort of incidental. Whereas the traditional view, children are like the central focus and the potential to uh, form a family with children is what distinguishes traditional conjugal marriage. And so Alito says, yeah, there are these two different views, and these days in popular culture, the companionate view is one more and more support. But he said, as to which of those views uh, should be the basis of legislation, the Constitution says nothing. He says, the, this, it's a, a policy question for the legislature to make. He said... And the legislature has decided that for purposes of federal policy in DOMA, we're going to stick with the traditional view for now. And what's wrong with that? I mean, someone has to decide between, and he says courts are not equipped to do that. Courts are not supposed and to And then make he policy. says, and if you want an example where courts are bad at figuring out the answer to this question, let here's a footnote on my feelings, as you, as you mentioned, on what went on at the Prop 8 trial, where yes. Judge Walker made all these ridiculous findings based on, about the institution based, yeah. on, based that, on what exactly? That, that the district court purported to make findings of fact based on opinion testimony about philosophy. That was a strange, I know you're going to write, I saw an advanced write-up of what you might be writing about in Law Notes. It was sort of striking to see yeah. Alito at length have a footnote about what is it it's a different case. Yeah, it's, case not, it's, not, right. it's not the same case. I think that, that footnote was intended to be part of an opinion in the Prop 8 case. They never got to write opinion, maybe, or whatever. But uh, he, he sort of never got to write it. So uh, I think it, you know, it's easy enough in your word processor to just cut and paste. <laughs> well, so it became it, a footnote. It had that feel of it. Um, yeah. Just a few last things, and then we'll take a break and move on to Prop 8. Um, one, I did want to note, um, I guess irony might be the right word. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, the, the majority opinion in, in, in Windsor does point out the presence of Blag as being important to their one of the reasons why they didn't have concerns right. about whether there was a, a dispute that they could adjudicate, which is that Blag is here. They're presenting all the arguments. They're they're clearly uh, there's an adversarial dispute because Blag is doing a good job at representing the. So in a, in a weird way, one wonders what would have happened if Blag did nothing. Yeah. If there was no Blag. Well, well, Kennedy found that there was jurisdiction anyway because the administration was continuing to enforce. Right, right. Well, that's true. Uh, so he said, in his opinion, we have no occasion to decide whether Black independently has standing in this case. Uh, but Alito says, oh, Black clearly has standing in this case. But, but Kennedy says, we might have been concerned that even though the administration had standing, they weren't articulating the argument, so it wasn't really being put in focus for us. But Black was there. And, you know, as to another thing, he said, the very question of jurisdiction gave us concern because none of the parties, including Black, took the position that the court didn't have jurisdiction Right, they had to appoint case. someone to argue. So we appointed an amicus curiae, and she did a great job, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this was another point of but contention you know what? for Scalia. You know what? We don't agree with her, but right. Scalia does. Right. All right, so uh, last two we questions should, I want to... No, well, I'm going to cut you off. 
Well, uh, do, no, we have to say very, very quickly, it's important to let people know, of course, the administration's response to this opinion was immediately, we're well, going to extend was, benefits eligibility to same-sex spouses, we're going to give green cards. They gave a, their first green card on Friday. Uh, the Office of Personnel Management announced open enrollment periods to enroll same-sex spouses in federal benefits programs. The military fell in line. Uh, Secretary Hagel said we're going to recognize wherever they're stationed. Uh, whether matter where, where they were married or where they reside. Yeah. Um, but the, the lingering question that Kennedy doesn't answer, that I'm sure is your question, <laughs> how about same-sex couples who are legally married but live in states that don't recognize no. their marriage? And the opinion, I don't think... No, I know. And, and one answer to the Scalia may be, like, the day before the opinion, it was also pretty confusing. It may not have been confusing from a federal perspective, but LGBT people have and continue to be living in a very confusing patchwork of laws across this country. Right. And that same concern that Scalia has for the confusion generated by this opinion, right. I don't think motivates him in quite the same way with respect to other confusion. But the question I was going to ask, it does, it would have segued to where you went, but uh, I think what you pointed out is obviously very important. And I was going to ask about, and this is not a partisan question about sort of looking for, you know, applause for, for the Obama administration, although there are many, including myself, who probably would be happy to extend those applause. Just the impact of the Justice Department's position here and the Obama administration with respect to DOMA, how much this dispute, how much that mattered to all of this. I mean, we've talked about how some of it mattered with the sort of, in terms of the procedural posture of the well, case and things like that. But the Can you speak of, to that a little bit? The question of how it mattered to the court in terms of dealing with the merits, I don't think a whole lot. And that's because the win rate of the Solicitor General's office has drastically declined during the Roberts Court, uh, partly because the administration is usually arguing opposite to the Republican Party line, and the Republican Party line tends to be uh, the, the line of the conservatives on the court. Uh, and and so the the fact that the we had the solicitor general basically arguing on our our side in the case, even though he was the petitioner, I don't think that made a whole lot of difference in terms of influencing people. Maybe it, it was sending a signal to the Democratic nominees uh, to the court, but I don't think they needed a signal, given the way their own uh, due process and equal protection jurisprudence has unfolded. Where it mattered, I guess, and this is all speculation. Although some public opinion polling when when Obama embraced marriage equality. Would, could probably buttress the idea. But in terms of setting the stage for sort of where this decision could perhaps be seen as... Cause, I mean, some people are already saying it was the only thing they possibly could have done, given where public opinion is. I mean, there are people saying no, that. I don't think you can say yeah. that about a five to four opinion. No, that's right. But um, I, I guess in my own view, I mean, I, it'll take some time to assess, but obviously having a sitting president and their Justice Department, in terms of the impact on the sort of the popular, uh, you know, the popular opinion on this issue, I'm sure played a, a significant role. But the last question I had for you is just, it's often my last question for you on a given case, often one of reflection on sort of uh, through the vantage point of, of having written about many of these cases on, on the Times. Uh, in, in terms of the march from Romer to Lawrence to Windsor, Windsor um, and maybe there, there's obviously cases in between, and you could start this story at various parts. But using that as a timeline, I was wondering if you could reflect on where we've been and where, <laughs> what that line tells us, and whether you, you find yourself sitting here sort of remembering how it, you might, what you might have been thinking at the time of those decisions, and did you see this day coming? Well, you know, I think we could even give Edie Windsor the last word because she's been doing a lot of public speaking the last few days, and, and she says if someone had told her back in the 80s, that she would end up being the grand marshal of the gay pride celebration in 2013 after winning a 
big decision on same-sex marriage in the Supreme Court, she would have said, you're crazy. <laughs> okay. you know? So, you know, we have seen an incredible, incredible change in a relatively short period of time in public opinion, in judicial opinion, in political opinion, uh, to the point where some people are now saying within the Republican Party, not yet a whole lot, but some people are saying, you know, the Republican Party has really got to get with the program on same-sex marriage because it's no longer a wedge issue for, you, for us. Now it's going to hurt us because younger voters overwhelmingly support it. The younger voters are going to grow up to be middle-aged voters, and the older voters who are the most opposed to it are going to die out, and the Republican Party is going to be left in the dust on this issue. So I think it's fair to say then, with you power for quoting Edie, um, you would not sit here and say you saw this coming from... 15 years ago. Not from 15 years ago, but I can say we saw this coming from maybe five or six years ago as things sort of unfolded after Lawrence with the Massachusetts Supreme Court's marriage opinion and then some opinions in other states. There was clearly a trend going on. But uh, I think going into the Supreme Court, no one could say with 100% confidence that we had Justice Kennedy's vote, and we needed it. And we got it. And, you know, I was sitting at my computer, as many people were, watching SCOTUS blog as they, you know, live blogging the Supreme Court on Wednesday morning. And the opinion comes out and it says, uh, you know, affirmed equal protection. And I was sitting here with a colleague, Larry Levine, from McGeorge Law School. And we jumped up and we shouted. (laughs) Great. And and partly it was a sigh of relief. Right. Because, you know, the predictions were that it would be Kennedy and we would win, but they were just predictions. Right. Expectations on this one, we would have been disappointed. So we're going to leave uh, the Windsor case there when we return. We'll we'll speak about the uh, Prop 8 Perry case, probably not as uh, at great a length, but uh, stay with us and we'll talk about that case when we return. Hi, we are back uh, discussing the case of Hollingsworth, Hollingsworth v. Perry, uh, which I'm going to refer shorthand as the Prop 8 case or the, or the Perry case. And in, in that case, as again, uh, this is all familiar to our listeners by now, um, the Supreme Court uh, in, a, in a decision authored by Justice Roberts has ruled that the Prop 8, the original proponents of Prop 8, uh, the proposition in, in California uh, amending the state constitution to limit marriage to one man and one w- woman, uh, that they did not have standing to pursue the appeal in the, in, in the Ninth Circuit. So what that means, take it away, Art, is that? What that means is that what we have in the original case of Perry versus Schwarzenegger, as it was filed in 2009, we have a district court decision holding that Proposition 8 violates the 14th Amendment rights of Californians, of all people who might want to marry in California, based on due process and equal protection. And since no one who had standing to appeal it wanted to appeal it, the governor didn't want to appeal it, Governor Schwarzenegger said he's happy to live with this decision, Attorney General Brown didn't want to appeal it, the uh, head of the Department of Public Health didn't want to appeal it, the two county clerks who were sued in Alameda and Los Angeles County didn't want to appeal it. So it's not appealed. The appeal is now wiped out from history. The Ninth Circuit's decision is vacated. The stay that they issued of uh, Judge Walker's order is lifted. And as a reminder, and as a reminder, we were talking about this before we started. Whereas the trial court ruling, the district court was a much more expansive ruling in yes. terms of on the merits. The Ninth Circuit had a much more narrow attempt to right. try to ultimately get to some of the same result, which is to say that the the actions of the voters in 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 restricting the the right to marry. Um, after um, the the state of California has already made the decision to extend all the rights and benefits of marriage to to, to folks th- through the vehicle of domestic partnerships, that 
those kind of circumstances where a state has already made that decision and then the voters go to rescind it is a viol- is a constitutional violation in the court. Most, I, well, how would you? Everyone describe? was ridiculing that <laughs> okay. theory during the oral argument. Okay, that, that, that did not fare as well. But the point is, so, so the broader ruling is now the one that because right. of this dismissal stands in California. So, so you know. Supreme Court opinions are written in English, and so it's sometimes interesting, even if you're not a lawyer, to read them. And I would say go to the Supreme Court website and read the DOMA decision. Read the United States v. Windsor. There's lots of interesting stuff in there. Don't bother reading Hollingsworth versus Perry because neither the court in the opinion by Chief Justice Roberts nor the dissent in the opinion by Justice Kennedy says anything about the merits of the case. It's entirely focused on the issue of whether initiative proponents uh, should be allowed to appeal adverse decisions about their initiative beyond the trial level. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts in, in, in makes it very clear that the district court did have jurisdiction to decide this case, that the plaintiffs clearly had standing. This was two same-sex couples, one in Southern California, one in Northern California. They went to the county clerk. They sought a marriage license. It was denied. Uh, and he said they certainly had standing. They had a personal stake in the issue. Uh, But he said once Prop 8 was passed, the particular role of the initiative proponents was over. That under the state constitution, their role is to propose a question, to get the signatures, to get the Secretary of State to approve the wording, put it on the ballot, file uh, an argument in its favor to be included in the official ballot pamphlet. They can wage their campaign to get it passed. But he said once it's passed, they're no different from any other citizen of California regarding the issue of whether it's constitutional or not. And why is it um, there? these are not um, sort of questions for the, I'm, I'm not acting puzzled for the sake of having conversation. Right. There are aspects of this case that I find more difficult to sort of wrap my head around than, yeah. than the Windsor case. So these questions I'm, I'm genuinely looking for some help on, and maybe some listeners are as well. Um, in the district court, Right. right. Roberts is saying it was okay. And I guess California law does it, it make okay. clear it was that okay the, for them to intervene because the Prop 8 proponents to intervene in the district court. And why is that? Why why is that? Well, because the district court quickly discerned that the actual defendants were not going to defend Prop 8. And so, you know, you might say that the appropriate thing at that point will be to issue a default judgment in favor of the plaintiff and just order that Prop 8 be a nullity without writing an opinion on the grounds that it wasn't being defended. But here were these people who had raised and spent millions and millions of dollars to get Prop 8 on the ballot and who were really urgently asking the court to be allowed to participate in this case and provide the arguments that the state was not going to provide and that the judge was sympathetic to the argument that uh, the elected officials who were not going to defend Prop 8 shouldn't have a veto over the decision of the people, that that at least the proponents should get a hearing in court and get to present their arguments so that the court would have all sides of the story. And, in fact, the, the court also allowed the city of San Francisco to intervene. Because and I, the city of San Francisco was where this all started in California when the mayor in 2004, right after uh, Lawrence versus Texas and, and the Massachusetts case, uh, marriage case, the mayor, Gavin Newsom, said, we should be issuing marriage licenses. And then there was litigation in the California Supreme Court Thousands of people got married over a few days. Then their marriages were declared invalid. You know, it all started in San Francisco. So the judge said, okay, I'll let the city of San Francisco intervene. But they denied intervention to the LGBT public interest groups, which had opposed the filing of this lawsuit. Then they wanted to intervene as co-plaintiffs. And uh, 
the American Foundation for Equal Rights, the group that was formed to bring this suit, said to the judge, you know, we're in charge of this suit. This is our lawsuit. Don't let these gay rights groups in. They're trying to take over our case. <laughs> and so the judge said, well, they can be amicus curiae, mm-hmm. but they're not going to be able to participate. I, that's that's well said and helpful. I, I guess the thing that I struggled with then was still the idea. I get what Roberts is saying in the majority where he says, look, once the court has ruled and then we know that Prop 8 is is gone now, right? Then you, well, but you, he didn't you say that. No, no, but you proponents don't have an interest. Your interests are no different than anybody else's right. in that there's a law in the books that you don't like or you right. dislike, whatever. Any, but, any citizen of California might feel aggrieved that Prop 8 was declared unconstitutional because they voted for it or they believe in it. But he said, we don't accord standing to proceed in federal court to invoke the jurisdiction of the Court of Appeals to anyone in the state who might feel aggrieved by an opinion. It's just, you know, it's unworkable. And what we say is that the duly elected public officials who have authority to represent the interests of the state of California decided not to appeal, and they're the only people who had standing to appeal because the order runs against them. No, that, that's okay. And that's very true yeah, as a technical matter. The order I mean, runs against the governor and the attorney general. And it's just that those standing. same elected officials. I mean, this is where you get the push the and pull of the dissent. The case gives them a veto. Right. right. It, it, you get the dissent authored by Justice Kennedy. Kennedy. And we'll speak about the unusual right. alignment. But they're making the point that, look, you know, the, in the district court as well, it was those same elected officials who were not willing right. to do anything with respect to prosecuting a defense of the action. It's the same sort of, you're in the same boat at the appellate level, right? right? That the interest, and Kennedy makes much of, and I'm not expressing a view on this, but makes much of this idea of this is a process where the citizenry directly is supposed to be empowered to right. basically do things because maybe the elected officials aren't doing things they should be doing or aren't being activist enough with respect to certain things. So he looks at it as a, look, at the end of the day, you're say, maybe it's a little bit of, he thinks Roberts is putting form over substance in the sense that the whole point of the citizen-initiated process, according to the according to the dissent at least, is that there are these occasions where right. these people who passed it are going to be the ones who should be able to and I think you know, the we, we also have Kennedy's concern with federalism, because remember, he was concerned with federalism in the Doma case, too. He says, look, the Supreme Court of California is the definitive interpret- interpreter of California law. The Supreme Court of California, in a, an extensive ruling of, that was sparked by litigation against Prop 8 after it was passed, you know, uh, they said it was properly enacted. Uh, in, in conformity with the procedures for enacting initiative amendments to the state constitution. And then, in an advisory opinion that was requested by the Ninth Circuit, they went back and took a look, and they said that initiative proponents under California law have standing to defend their initiative if it's challenged in court. And certainly, uh, the California Supreme Court seemed to feel that they should have standing in this case. Uh, and he said, we're bound by that. We're bound by the California Supreme Court's construction of California law. And therefore, we're bound to accept the standing of these people. And uh, Roberts says, you know, Roberts basically reopens the issue and says, well, no, the California Supreme Court is wrong. But I think he says that because he's saying the California Supreme Court can decide questions of California law. It can't decide questions of federal law, at least not in a way that binds the U.S. Supreme Court or the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So it says whether they have standing for purposes of Article 3 of the federal constitution is a different question, whether they have standing as a matter of California law. 
And we have to, as a federal court, jealously guard our jurisdiction and confine our role to deciding actual cases between adverse parties who have individual standing. So the Supreme Court basically rejected the California Supreme Court's theory that the proponents had standing as a representative of the state when, in fact, they weren't elected officials. They weren't authorized by the state legislature to do this. They weren't specifically designated by the governor or the attorney general to do this. In what sense did they have representative capacity? And I guess one response could be then um, in other states that use this sort of uh, use this referendum process is legislation could clean up what the rights are of the proponents with Possibly. respect to. But still, as a matter of federal law under Article Three, that's a different question from the question of state law as to whether something. So even so, if they so made so it the clear that in the absence of a, if you have this exact scenario repeat itself where proponents win, let's say, at the ballot box, and then state officials fail to defend a challenge. They They could not make it clear that in any subsequent dispute regarding that, that they can stand in the shoes of the elected officials for the purposes of either prosecuting an appeal or... Well, you might say, let's say they put a provision in the state constitution saying this. It would still be state law, and state law doesn't determine federal law. I mean, in uh, one of the judges who signed on to Robert's opinion was uh, Justice Ginsburg. And Justice Ginsburg was the author of an opinion for the court in the Arizona English case, which has been much commented on in the context of this case. That was also an initiative. It was uh, passed in Arizona, making English the official language of Arizona for all purposes and providing that all state business must be conducted in English. A uh, county clerk who conducted some of her business in Spanish filed a lawsuit challenging it. Uh, the governor had been opposed to it in the first place. It was enacted by the people. Uh, the governor sort of rolled over and played dead, and uh, the initiative proponents came in and they defended it, and the federal district court found that it violated the First Amendment. Uh, the initiative proponents tried to appeal it to the Ninth Circuit. At first, the Ninth Circuit said, fine, you know, we'll let you appeal it. And then there was an on bank, and there was a back and forth. Uh, ultimately, the case went to the Supreme Court, and by that time, the clerk was no longer working for the state of, uh, of Arizona, so the court said the case was moot because the plaintiff, the only person who had real standing in this case, was no longer really employed by the state, so the amendment didn't affect her anymore. So the court dismissed the appeal as moot. But in her opinion for the court, Justice Ginsburg said, we also have serious doubts about the standing of the initiative proponents to bring this case up on appeal. She said, there's nothing in Arizona law that specifies that they represent the state. They're just ordinary yeah. citizens. Although that would go to, right, that yeah. goes to the the, the scenario works. I was I was running right. about. Okay, so I want to move, we're going to finish soon. Uh, there's a few things that we have to talk about. Right. Um, right. What happened after? <laughs> well, there's, the, there's three. There's the what happened after. Um, there's, this does involve speculation by you, Art Leonard, and others, but this unusual alignment of justices in this right. case with respect to both the majority and the dissent, obviously. Right. Um, and then just, you know, ending with your reflection on well, <laughs> the impact of this, not only, we know that it, at, at, at first it appears only to be limited to California, obviously, as a technical matter, but I wanted to talk about what it's like to now have the largest state in the United States, a marriage equality state, and what that might mean to larger, larger movements. So let, let's first talk about what happened. What right? happened? Well... Technically, under the rules of the court, there's a 25-day period in which the losing party can file a motion for rehearing. And the court does not issue its official mandate back to the lower court until after that period has expired. 
But in our modern electronic age, of course, the Ninth Circuit got the court's opinion immediately. Yeah, they're not waiting for someone to hand deliver it. And, and in fact, the uh, the clerk of the court sent out a notice to everyone who's on, you know, the, the Ninth Circuit lets you sign up to get all official notices on a pending case. And so I got, a, I got an email later that day, the Ninth Circuit has received the Supreme Court's opinion. Well, the Attorney General of California, Kamala Harris, notified the Ninth Circuit that the state would like them to raise, to lift the stay. Why wait until the end of July to lift the stay? It's Gay Pride Week. People want to <laughs> get, get on with it. Let's get on with it. So they lifted the stay on Friday afternoon, two days after the opinion came out, and the plaintiffs in the case got married that afternoon. Uh, the uh, the women got married in San Francisco. And Attorney General Harris conducted the ceremony. The men got married in L.A. The outgoing mayor, Billy Ragosa, mm-hmm. conducted the ceremony. And uh, other people, in fact, uh, on Saturday morning, there was a line of 100 couples already when the clerk's office opened at 9. The word having gone out that the clerk's office would be open for the weekend, which it usually isn't. That's so great, isn't they were, it? <laughs> they were accommodating thousands and thousands of people who were coming to San Francisco for the big gay pride celebrations on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So they accommodated them because you don't need to be a resident of California. You know, it's, anyone can get married there. Uh, so they were accommodating people, and hundreds of marriages took place over the weekend. Uh, you know, streams of people lined up at the San Francisco City Hall. Uh, so that was the first response, and, and that was partly because Governor Brown had anticipated this ruling, had asked Attorney General Harris for an opinion letter as to the scope of Judge Walker's order, and she said it has statewide effect. Every county clerk's office has to issue licenses. Every county recorder has to record the marriages. Send a notice out. Brown sent the notice out on Wednesday afternoon. He said, as soon as the stay is lifted, same-sex couples have a right to marry in California. So it's gone into effect, and that, of course, outraged the proponents. The Alliance Defending Freedom, formerly known as the Alliance Defense Fund, which is the litigation body that was financing the proponents' case, filed an emergency appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court on Saturday morning to stop the marriages. They said that until the official mandate of the court goes out at the end of July, or not, because if we file a motion for rehearing that the court grants, then the mandate won't go out. Then the case would be set for rehearing in the new term. They said this was precipitous. This was, you know, unlawful for the Ninth Circuit to lift the stay before all of the. I'm the, sorry, I'm laughing because all the machinations you read the, if you, you, you read the blog. I mean, I if you follow the gay, gay blogs, you also inherently follow some the of the anti gay blogs because they quote them. And this is I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, I guess I could laugh. The sort of. Um, you know, the accusations that this is just another example of the um, assault and undemocratic, you know, process, being, you know, like the hysteria. To, about, para- to paraphrase a phrase, the vast left-wing conspiracy, yeah. you know, to impose same-sex <laughs> marriage is, on the United States. But this States. is the latest example of the unlawfulness yeah. afoot here. Right. Yeah. So, so Justice Kennedy is the Ninth Circuit judge for emergency motions, and he turned them down, <laughs> which is interesting because he wrote the dissent, yeah. you know. Uh, so he turned them down. And they can go shopping for another justice. I, I don't know if they're shopping now, but what they should really do is they should be focusing on doing their motion for rehearing. Well, no, another, do one. the shopping will help with fundraising. But, but the other question is, will there be any activity in state court? Because uh, the local counsel, Andrew Puno, who was the local counsel for the proponents in this case, has already been making noises about going into state court and trying to get a uh, temporary restraining order perhaps on behalf of a clerk in one in a conservative county who doesn't want to issue marriage licenses and claims that the order is... And there has been... Yeah. This was more um, in response to the specter of perhaps them 
the court reaching the merits in Prop 8 and imposing, in their view, marriage equality nationwide. There's been some alarming comments on some of the blogs about how they will, you know, sort of not go down without a fight against right. this, and sort of sounding more than just running into court with legal briefs, but right. that there would be outright defiance well, of the court. They know that there are appeals pending in the Ninth Circuit from uh, marriage rulings in Hawaii and Nevada that our side lost. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are, those are on appeal. There are some other cases around the country on marriage. I mean, this issue is going to continue unfolding as early as this summer. There's there's a motion pending in a case in Michigan where I understand there's a possibility that a federal judge may declare the Michigan anti-marriage amendment unconstitutional. Wow. So, uh, All right. Well, let's um, – I the two other things, let's keep it quick then. Just right. speak to the unusual alignment on, uh, on I, the Unusual justice. alignment of the justices. In the majority, we had uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Scalia, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, and Justice Kagan. So we had three of the four Democrats on the court together with – two of uh, the Republicans holding that there was no standing. And then descending was Justice Kennedy, joined by Justice Alito and Justice Thomas and Justice Sotomayor. So, you know, we're all wondering, what's going on here? Because from the oral argument, it seemed like Sotomayor was ready to strike down Prop 8 on the merits. And uh, it also uh, seemed like the, uh, the four Democratic appointees to the court, all, all four of them were probably in favor of striking down on the merits. But there was a lot of speculation in the press based on comments that she's made in speeches and interviews that Justice Ginsburg might be hesitant to do so on any kind of theory that would apply nationwide, and that it was difficult to look at this case and figure out how you could have an affirmative ruling on the merits that didn't have a nationwide effect, because the, the narrow approach of the Ninth Circuit aroused only amused comment in the Supreme Court and sort of incredulous amused comment. Uh, so, you know, there was a puzzle facing the court. I think what, what Ginsburg and the other Democratic nominees on the court didn't want to do was to join an opinion that would uphold Prop 8 because that would go against their, their own doctrinal views of due process and equal protection. On the other hand, uh, Justice Ginsburg was hesitant to issue a decision now that she thought might be too early, too soon, too broad. Uh, she continually referred back to Roe v. Wade, the abortion case, and said the court decided that precipitately it was too broad, it was too early in the struggle for abortion rights. It, it turned the anti-abortion movement into a powerful force in this country by uh, taking it out of politics. And then, it, among other things, very much more politicized Supreme Court appointments mm -hmm. as a result. Uh, abortion became a litmus test for certain administrations. So one theory I have is that this lineup reflects Justice Ginsburg's view that it was prudent to join Roberts and Scalia in finding no jurisdiction here. And once she decided to do so, it sort of brought Breyer and taken along with her on the idea that, one, it will result in the district court opinion going into effect. So same-sex marriage will resume in California. Two, the court will avoid having to make a nationwide decision there's a movement going on. Things are going in a certain direction. Let it play out for another year or two. And maybe the court will never have to make this decision, although it seems likely it will at some point. Uh, and so it sort of makes sense that you have this lineup. Uh, I don't know why Sotomayor is on the other side. Maybe she just felt that the court had to grapple with this, or maybe she just genuinely agreed 
yeah, well, with I Justice mean, Kennedy that, after all, there's really know, concerns about this the about the standing. Um, yeah. Okay, we'll leave it there on that. I'd say just the granting of the cert to begin with. I mean, that's the part that I I'd yeah, be, who voted for. I cert? would be so interested to no know how that broke down. It wasn't Scalia. He was yeah. because he uh, when the issue came up, I think it was Kennedy speculated an oral argument. Maybe we shouldn't be deciding this case. And Scalia said, "Well, it's too bad now." Yeah, but maybe he you know, was part of the now. folks who decided. I don't to think run. so. Okay, and then uh, the, well, end the podcast. I guess just. Um, you know, especially in the context of a case that a lot of uh, folks had doubts about the, the merits of bringing it at this time, including, as you refer to, many of the longer uh, established LGBT rights organizations. Um, reflection on the significance and now not only on the fact that California, given its its sort of size and importance to the, the United States in terms of how many people now live in a, a marriage equality jurisdiction and the fact that you don't have to be residents to get married there, um, sort of the import of that, and then the fact that this case went ahead and ended in a result that is not us winning the whole deal, but is a pretty right. big victory. Now, this is, uh, I think this case is more important in terms of politics than law at this point, uh, because this case has doubled, basically, the number of people in the United States who live in jurisdictions that, uh, that have same-sex marriage. Uh, we're up to over 30 percent, I think, of the population now. And just a year ago, before the, you know, we've won marriage equality in several states in the past year, but in, in just the past 12-month period, we've doubled the proportion of the population. We're up close to a third. And with the DOMA decision, of course, federal employees, wherever they are, are going to get benefits, and military personnel are going to get benefits, and people, regardless of where they're living, are going to be able to get green cards if they marry in one of the marriage equality states. So this has an impact even in the states that don't recognize same-sex marriage. Some substantial portion of the population there, uh, at least the, the uh, LGBT population who go to another state and get married, are going to have federal rights to some extent. We're still waiting to hear from the IRS. And it's worth reminding folks that how this is going to play out with respect to the, the administrative implementation of it with, with these scenarios of, well, if you get married in one place but you live in a non-marriage equality state, how that's going to work. There's going to be a fair amount of work yeah. that's going to have to happen for it to be... And, and the other important thing, and this isn't from the uh, from the Perry case, this is from the Doma, the Windsor case, is we have another prophetic Scalia dissent on the merits. Uh, in Lawrence versus Texas, uh, Justice Scalia's dissent predicted that that case would open the road to same-sex marriage. Five or six months later, the Massachusetts Supreme Court cited Lawrence and said, yes, same-sex couples have a right to marry under the Massachusetts Constitution. Uh, now, he says, you know, Justice Kennedy says they're not deciding whether same-sex couples have a right to marry. Don't you believe it? You know, he's laying the groundwork, and this this issue will be back before us in a year or two, and uh, we're going to have to confront it at that time. And this is most unusual. I don't, I don't recall any Supreme Court opinion that does this. Scalia devotes a page of his opinion to taking excerpts from Kennedy's opinion on the merits and editing them to sound like an opinion on the right of couples to marry under the 14th He's amendment. saying he's showing how easy this would be to have. He's, he's giving nation. lower courts a roadmap to well, rule in our favor. That's fair. Although if you Hawaii look at it, all he cases. does is he crosses out, he crosses out a couple of words. He crosses out DOMA and, and, and inserts in the, the state, state law. Yeah, and then he, he crosses out the number of children being raised by, mar- and mar- uh, by same-sex couples and sort of says you just have to choose another invented number. Yes. You know, doubting also the existence of tens of thousands of children being raised by... Same. So it was a pretty. Um, I you know last thing I'm going to end on. I did not go nuts about getting all worked up about Scalia's dissent, but he could not again keep himself from mentioning polygamy not once but not but twice in his dissenting opinion as sort of a uh, you know it's clear that he thinks 
that is this there, is not just... Is there some subconscious interest in polygamy on the part of Justice Well, Scalia? that I wasn't speculating you know, why about. Why is he obsessed about polygamy? Well, this this harkens back to... And, and I think there was at least one Republican senator who, who went public with his views that this is going to open up the road to bestiality. Yes. Well, I think yeah. also um, former governor... Um, who is that guy on Fox News now? Mike Huckabee of yeah. Arkansas also yeah. uh, speculated yeah, that this would open the door to all sorts of... Other things. Okay, so we're going to leave it there, Leonard. Uh, great job, as always. And in we'll probably have more to say about this in our regular podcast yes. in, a, in about a month. But, but not an hour's so, worth, because right. then people will, as you say, relentlessly forward-looking. And well, there will be other issues. There will be other issues, exactly. Right. So we're going to leave it there. Uh, thank you for listening. For uh, this and future podcasts, uh, you can find us in the iTunes store or at legal.podbean.com. Again, take a moment to give us some stars. Uh, if you're interested in becoming a Law Note subscriber, please visit us at uh, le-gal.org, and you could read some back issues at the New York Law School's Justice Action Center. And please follow the LGBT Bar Association on Twitter, uh, legal.org, legal.org, or uh, find us on Facebook. That's all. Thanks for listening.